This is the Weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, Drew Dockin and Tim Prady will have an in-depth conversation on what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. We're recording Monday morning. A lot has happened recently. Markets are up so far as our 10-year uh, treasuries, a little over 3.466 right now. Obviously, lots changed in the bank sector. Credit Suisse has been uh, rescued by UBS. Uh, that's mitigated some fears immediately, but it's definitely been falling a few contentious days, um, you know, as the contagion of banks definitely moved across the pond, so to speak. Uh, Tim, w- what do you got for us? Uh, what should we make of, you know, what, what happened to Credit Suisse and everything else? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a wild weekend. You know, the Saudi, um, not a finance minister, but basically he was asked the question, are you guys going to continue to add on Credit Suisse? And he said, absolutely not. Now, he went on to say that they were at 9.9% and it creates complications and so forth. But just the way he could have said that instead of starting with absolutely not. And that essentially started the run. Uh, and you know, there's two big state banks in Switzerland. There's UBS and CS. Uh, the Swiss National Bank has a lot of money to backstop this thing. So it looks like, and you look at UBS this morning with the stock up, it looks like UBS said, all right, we're the only ones who can buy this thing, but you got to make it work for us. So they're basically going to have their one of their chief competitors wound down. Certainly the U.S. operations, if there's anything in there to be salvaged, UBS will take some of that in and they'll get rid of the rest. But I said to a client on Friday, this is going to look like a controlled wind down. And that's what happened. What is surprising to the markets here is that the equity was left worth something, not a lot, but you still got a kiss on the cheek for the Saudis. Uh, But it's the AT1, it's the uh, contingent convertibles, essentially debt that should be senior to equity that took a zero. So now people are looking at it this morning and they're looking at like, what are the ramifications of this? And one of the things has to be, everybody's gonna spend a lot more time looking at the paperwork on those cocos, as they're called, or some of the kind of the junior debt uh, that is that are in some of these structures and saying, wait a minute, is it is it possible that I could end up below equity? So as we look at it this morning, look, the market loves a rescue, right? So S&P futures, we're up this morning, the market is now up, and I think it looks just like 08. You'd get a rescue, everybody would get excited, but the same issues that took Silicon Valley down, and really Credit Suisse is different, because Credit Suisse has been, Credit Suisse's uh, deposits were down 40% last year. So this has been an incredibly slow train wreck, and there were plenty of people who said it probably will end up looking like something like this. But as we come out of all this, you just have to look at it and say, um, debt is going to get more expensive here for these banks. Deposits are getting more expensive for the banks. Everybody is sitting on a uh, uh, on an asset book that has to be written down. Uh, so we're really not out of the woods. The question now that the Fed is going to backstop every depositor, the question is no longer solvency as much as it is profitability. And that's where NIMS, the net interest margin of all these banks, are clearly going to come down a lot. And I think that is the reason why the KRE, even after the rescue last week, 
has continued to come in. Now it's bounced a little bit today, but that's kind of how I how I see the world. Everybody loves that free money. You look at global liquidity is higher as the United States is is facilitating swap facilities. So all these central banks can use whatever underwater bonds or create bonds in order to swap them for U.S. dollars. So global liquidity all of a sudden looks better. What makes stocks go up? Higher global liquidity. The other side of it is, as Torsten Slock talked about, friend of the podcast, uh, he thinks that financial conditions have tightened by 150 basis points. Now, spreads have certainly widened out, and that's what you're looking at with financial conditions. But the fact is, is that I don't know, mortgages are down a little bit. The economy seems to be pretty sensitive to even up here when you get mortgage bonds to come down a little bit, uh, they like that. So overall, you see risk on this morning, and that's kind of counter to what I think you should be doing, which is nobody knows what's going on here. Nobody knows what the next shooter drop is going to be. And, and, and you don't know, we don't know that the Fed or the ECB or whomever, fiscal authorities, are going to backstop every bad thing. And I think that is the moral hazard that you see this morning, is how much we are addicted to central banks, whether it be in Switzerland or the United States, coming in and saying, hey, don't worry about it. We got it. We got the problem solved. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of this falls right after, uh, you know, the first Republic rescue too, right? You're looking at 30 billion deposits. I mean, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase all contributed five billion apiece. So, I mean, everyone's been acting in unison right now, but we just see how systematic it is. Uh, yeah, you know how many shoes drop, so to speak. Do we still see rescue rescue packages like this internally between the banking community? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, bank lending is actually higher; is more expensive on a, on an overnight rate uh, as of right now. And First Republic still seems to be. Uh, untouchable because uh, despite the KRE being up today, that one's down 15%. And it's a confidence game. If unfortunately your bank is the one that's in the headlines, that means that you're going to have the wrong deposits and there's just no really holding it up. And, you know, who knows what happens here, but it seems likely that to the degree that confidence doesn't hold up, you know, it'll be a, it'll be a Silicon Valley situation potentially where the equity doesn't get any. I'm not making a prediction here, but just the yeah. trend is is that you know the equity ends up with nothing the subordinated debt is huge haircuts and the deposits end up going to somebody else and and even after silicon valley i mean you've obviously seen massive tech layoffs uh google meta amazon a bunch of other firms i think they saw they cut 104,000 jobs in the last year amazon just amazon just said they're going to lay off another 9,000 so it's going to be increasingly hard to for a lot of these you know, go-go companies to find financing. Yeah. I mean, the more, the interesting question is the queues have ripped here. Semis have ripped. So like, you know, the the old fang has, has really kind of worked here. Yeah. And yet we know that they are decelerating growth stories. So as a fundamental investor, you're really struggling. Let's say you're running a long short book. You're making the assumption well, growth is slowing. The, the, the earnings need to be revised lower. And yet there is this excitement that all of a sudden these are cost-cutting stories. Well, they can be cost-cutting stories, but cost-cutting stories that are cash flow stories trade at really, really low multiples. And it doesn't seem to me like the market has uh, accepted that reality yet. And then we think, I mean, in terms of GDP forecasts, I mean, you know, Goldman obviously had some things to say. It's 
been a downward trajectory. Um, that's probably going to be in line with what a lot of banks and, and firms are coming out with in the future, right? Yeah, I think everybody is looking at tighter financial conditions and assuming that lending gets harder. You know, we've been talking about it for a couple months with each subsequent senior loan officer survey that shows that credit demand is falling, but credit availability is falling. So I'm sorry, we can all go back and learn Econ 101 again, but I don't understand how this economy doesn't slow meaningfully if the cost of capital is going higher and the availability of capital is going a lot higher and demand for capital is going a lot lower. Availability of capital is going down. So, you know, it, it, everybody is, is revising estimates lower. The Atlanta Fed uh, GDP tracker has been like plus 2%. Uh, other people that I follow are, are are quite a bit lower than that. But the overall trend, if you look at the preponderance of the data, is we are slowly slowing. We are continuing to slow. And, you know, long and variable lags and all that, I still believe it. I still believe the same thing. Now, maybe neutral was a lot higher than everybody thought. In other words, maybe the first couple hundred basis points of Fed tightening didn't do as much. Uh, but you can't tell me that with the tightening that's occurred in the housing market, that there isn't going to be weakness in the housing market. Now, my wife, who's a realtor here in suburban New York, is still dealing with a lack of availability of houses and 10, 11 people competing for a house. But nationally, where most of the houses are, you, you are down 5%. And just when you more than double the cost of capital and what is a levered investment for everybody, you can't tell me that that isn't going to have a negative impact, not just on how many homes get traded, but the price of those homes. And so the slowing is happening, uh, but it really is surprising to me that it's taken so long. But it, as I wrote in my essay this past week, when somebody says the housing market is still strong, they're inherently looking backwards. They're not looking forward to what is the likely change and rate of change. And if you look at the factors like higher cost of capital and less availability of capital or for, for, for a levered investment, that should tell you that the trend is going against you. And what was the last, the lesson of that essay was still is thanks for the history lesson. Uh, yeah, right. So it's inherently, you're, you're not forward looking. Right. And in, in, in terms of the Goldman forecast too, I think it is important to note that Banks with less than $250 billion, they comprise about 50% of U.S. and commercial lending, 60% of real estate lending, and 80% of commercial real estate lending. Yeah. So uh, not necessarily boutique banks, but you know, smaller banks than what we might be thinking of uh, really are financing a whole lot. Yeah. I mean, I talked to a guy the other day who is a small home builder, uh, and uh, he's a very sophisticated guy. He's actually a former bank analyst. But he now knows that if he wants to do some projects on land that he owns, uh, he's going to need construction loans. And his conversations early on with the banks were, hey, man, why don't we talk about this in about a month? Because we're really not looking to put up new construction loans right now. And if you want to press it, you're not going to like the rates that we're going to be looking at. So it, it is tightening. I was listening to an analyst this morning talking about the hotel REITs, the guys who actually build the properties and own the properties, availability of capital is way going down. So some of those companies, some of those, uh, some of those REITs, their growth rates are coming down. This is going to be a story told for manufacturers, for other businesses across the economy. It's long and variable lags. It takes time. Think about it. 
if you built a project, let's say a few years ago, and you got a construction loan at 3% and you're finishing all of your projects and so forth, but now you've got to take another loan, a term loan post-construction to float this thing. Now you're borrowing at 7%, 8%. It just changes the economics for commercial and industrial across the board. I think we should mention too, I mean, in terms of overnight lending rates, we got the European Central Bank's um, has hikes, you know, 50 basis points, despite all this mayhem that's going on. Uh, what do we make of that? Does that have any um, parallels we can look at the Fed for, Fed for yeah. as well? I mean, look, they've got a they've got a bad inflation problem in in Europe. You may have a banking problem, but you still have an inflation problem. It's not like inflation has gone away. It's not like wage growth issues have gone away. It's not like consumer packaged goods companies are no longer going to go through with their price hikes. The inflation is entrenched. So I think that the way Lagarde looked at it is the same way Powell is going to look at it, which is, all right, we'll deal with the financial company, we'll deal with the banks, we'll ring fence those issues, but we've still got to, we've still got to go with our mandate, which is price stability. And, you know, Fed bankers only go to heaven if they can get inflation down. And either Lagarde nor Powell can just say, all right, we got some volatility here, and even though inflation is still running at 6% in the U.S., we're going to take a wait-and-see approach. I don't think Powell can do that. Now, maybe the credit conditions get even tighter. I mean, there, there, there's people out there arguing that credit conditions have actually increased by 150 basis points over the last couple of weeks. But I, I don't know that the way they look at it, which is all spread-related, is the right way to think about it, because as a consumer... I'm now looking at financial conditions and saying, well, mortgage rates are actually lower. Um, gasoline prices are lower. So, you know, not in every way that you look at, you know, financial conditions, you know, small f, small c, just the idea of, of what are the conditions like. I don't know that for the average person, they look much tighter. As I said, they're going to look tighter if you're out in, in need of capital. But otherwise, things don't look particularly tighter to me. And again, I think that's why there's such a benign reaction in markets. Yeah, I I think we should probably note that, I mean, European officials are stressing that it's different. I mean, they mentioned there's a lot less deposit concentration. Silicon Valley yeah. Bank was a massive yeah. lender to both tech and health. And then also, I mean, I think deposit flows seem a bit more stable and European banks probably by and large are more well capitalized than, than U.S. banks for from a regulatory standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think the banks are well capitalized. The problem is the balance sheet, the duration risk on their balance sheet. And then the other question is, what happens to deposit beta here? Do more and more people who watch the news look at the fact that they're getting zero on their checking and their saving and some of their cash balances, and all of a sudden people just wake up to, oh, man, I could be getting 4%? on my money and you start seeing even faster move to money markets and so forth. And then all of a sudden that even makes that NIM issue that the banks are already facing that much worse. If we really do see deposit betas, cost of capital for the banks move up. Part of the argument, I guess, overall, it's definitely we seem in a downward trajectory. One of the few things that can really turn this around would be the Chinese being able to find ways to increase consumption consumption amongst their middle class in mm -hmm. particular. Um, so, what are your thoughts on how they do that, and you know how do they go about it in the first place? Well, you know it's interesting because everybody was so excited. All oil bulls were super excited that oil is going to come out of their you know two year pandemic morass 
and really be on fire with demand. And it really hasn't happened yet. It, I mean, they the global one of the reasons why global liquidity numbers look so strong is because of, of the efforts uh, in China. But like you saw, there was a Taiwanese export number this morning that was down big. Uh, to Hong Kong and to mainland China. South Korea export numbers have been really soft. So while you're seeing improvement in Chinese demand, you're not seeing it totally take off. And my concern in China is that you're going to have a bit of a pushing on the string scenario where, and by the way, like Macau has strengthened and so forth. I'm not saying there isn't a recovery yeah. happening in China, but is it going to be parabolic demand relative to these really easy comps. And I don't think that's the case because the real pushing on the string scenario is people don't want to take the credit. They don't want to use the liquidity prime to them because what they've traditionally done with it is buy real estate. And while I think in some cities you, you see some better numbers, the real tier one cities, Beijing and Shanghai, but in the rest of the country and as you move west in China, you still have real property market problems where for 20 years you have stuff going up on the greater fool theory. You're buying an apartment, it stays empty, generates no cash flow, you sell it to somebody else for a higher price because they believe they can turn around and sell it to somebody else for a higher price. And the music has come to an end on that. And I just don't think that just adding a lot of liquidity is going to help people make investments that they no longer believe in because the you know the music has stopped here and you really have meaningfully down pricing and without demand for all of these units it's hard to say what is going to make the chinese real estate investor regain its confidence you just have too much capacity yeah and i think the employment situation looks different too obviously i mean youth unemployment is now 17 percent and yeah. you're just going to have a lot less of the kind of insatiable need for consumer goods spending as there was when there was much stronger employment pre-pandemic yeah hey, you know I'm, I'm no cultural expert on china by any means but anything i've read about this lay flat movement that there is a generational issue you know we talk about it in the united states probably every generation and every nation talks about yeah. it right that the young kids don't want to work as hard as us well yeah. it seems to be a very real reality in china where the, the the current generation is not as much enjoying uh the you know put your head down work and don't complain ethic uh mm -hmm. that's kind of traditional in china yeah. absolutely uh, anything else we've overlooked tim do you think um you know, just two things I think that I wanted to mention. One of the things I wrote about is just the massive spending bifurcation. I was talking to an analyst who covers a lot of uh, retailers and luxury goods, uh, businesses, uh, some high-end businesses like boats, big ticket uh, stuff. And the pattern is very, very clear. With a very high end in the United States, the demand is very strong. You know, the New York Times had an article over the weekend about in uh, Palm Beach, because it's hard to get dinner reservations. People are spending $250,000 to join a dinner club so you can get her for the right to get a reservation deed somewhere. <laughs> and like with the boat market, if you're buying a million and a half, $2 million boat, you probably still have a waiting list. If you're buying a 19 foot outboard, all kinds of all kinds of availability. And the same thing as you go down market, whether it be in RVs and motorcycles and all that. So. Uh, there is a real bifurcation that is happening. And so when people say the consumer is strong, it's just not true. The high-end consumer is without doubt, without a doubt, still very, very strong. Everybody else, not so much. 
And if you look at, I think it's Johnson Red Book, the same store sales trends across the economy are very, very consistently slowing. And you're going to see negative growth all the way through 2023. That means negative operating leverage. That means lower earnings across retail. I really don't like uh, the U.S. consumer right here. And the other thing I wanted to talk about was Janet Yellen's testimony uh, to Senator Lankford. If you haven't had an opportunity, go on YouTube and take a look at that back and forth, because what Lankford really exposed was that we have a two-tier system right now for banking, where the too big to fail guys um, the ones that are that are significant, that could create more run on the banks, there you're protected. But as Lankford said, so if I'm a small Oklahoma bank, I don't get the same protection as Silicon Valley. And yet, by the way, my depositors are paying fees in order to insure those millionaire and billionaire depositors in Silicon Valley. That's just not gonna work. Uh, unless we want to just for all the deposits to flow, to the JP Morgans and the Bank of Americas of the world, because that's what's going to happen. So I think that there will be proposals to try to fix this. But Yellen last week really didn't have any good answers. And I think the Democrats are going to realize they're the ones in charge here because they got the White House, just that's how the world yeah. looks at it, that they're going to have to come up with a better answer for those people in the small and local community banks, that they should have the same rights as anybody who's banking with JP Morgan. Absolutely. All right, thanks for your time today, Tim. Uh, for all our listeners, uh, thanks for your likes and subscribes, and, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the host and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WellFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WellFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WellFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to the accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the contents. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked to any of the contents. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Investment and investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.